So Easter was a blessing, and again, I just want to thank you for all your help, and like I said, there's people that serve here every week that make this possible, but a special effort was made on last Sunday for the Easter service, and we're just thankful for those, for all the effort that went into it. I'll tell you a funny story. Someone on Easter, I decided to suit up. Now, normally, I just wear some slacks and this shirt, but I actually wore one of my suits and was trying to dress up a little bit for Easter, and and a dear lady in our congregation said, wow, you actually look like a pastor. <laughs> so that's been with me all week long. I'm just wondering what I look like the other 51 weeks of the year. <laughs> we won't identify her. We won't do that. She's a dear, dear lady. Best dressed here usually. We are in Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, we will be looking at verses 7 through 13, this is part 2 of a message that I started a couple weeks ago, talking about Paul's Christ-likeness, Paul's Christ-likeness, so if you don't have a Bible, would you grab one of those blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you so that you can follow along with us in the Word of God, and if you flip that open to page 939, 939, that'll bring you to our text this morning. If you are a Christian, then I would like you to ask yourself this following question. Are you more like Christ today than you were a year ago or five years ago or even ten years ago? Are you more like Christ as a husband? As a wife, as a parent, are you more like Christ as an employee, as an employer, as a friend, as a neighbor, or even as a Christian? Are you more like Christ? I I know that may seem odd to ask that question, but are you more like Christ as a Christian? Since Christian itself, the word means follower of Christ or the party of Christ or even little Christ. Disciples of Christ. We sang a song called Amazing Grace. That was the words to that song were written by John Newton. And he's actually, I don't know if you know the story, but he was actually a slave trader for a time in his life before he came to Christ and before he repented of that evil. But eventually, as after becoming a Christian, he fought to abolish slavery, knowing that it was wrong, vile, and wicked. He wrote that, that song, Amazing Grace. He also, he also said this. It's a long quote, but I want to read it to you. I am not what I ought to be. Uh, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil, and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon shall I put off mortality, and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet, though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope, To be, I can truly say, I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's quoting the apostle Paul. That's what the apostle Paul said in in 1 Corinthians 15:10 by the grace of God I am what I am. It's a lengthy quote. Maybe you've you've heard it paraphrased like this. This one's a little bit easier to digest and swallow. I am not the man I ought to be. I am not the man I wish to be. And I am not the man I hope to be. But by the grace of God I am not the man I used to be. I wonder if you can say that this morning. Obviously, if you're a woman, you would use a different, you would say woman, okay? Just for you, just making sure we're clear on that. But I'm wondering 
If you can say, by the grace of God, I am not the man or woman that I used to be. He has changed me and he is changing me. Beloved, I've said this before. I'll say it again. God the Father has made it his purpose to change his people, his adopted children, as we read about in Romans 8.29, to conform them to the image of Christ. The goal of God's change for his people is for them to think, to feel, and to act more and more like his beloved son, Jesus Christ. And this process, beloved, happens as our minds and our hearts are slowly transformed by the hearing and believing of the word of God and obeying that word through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within every true believer. It's the word of God, beloved. Believed, heard, and believed and acted upon that transforms sinners into the very image and likeness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know that passage in 2 Timothy 3.16, right? All Scripture is breathed out by God. Scripture, and it is what is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, fully equipped for every good work. It's the word of God, beloved. That's what does it. Just a side note, I see this frequently when I'm driving around in some cities, these churches that pop up and they call themselves deliverance ministries. Maybe you've seen it too. Deliverance ministry, come here at 7 o'clock, we'll deliver you. And typically what goes on in those places is they're there to deliver you from your demon of anger or your demon of lust or your demon of alcoholism. And you come in and they'll lay your hand, their hands on you and speak some stuff over you. And supposedly, that's what will transform you into the image of Christ. See, your real issue is you just got this demon who's, who's in you and making you bad. And the man of God will come up and lay his hands on you and pow, boom, now you're free from anger. I wish that was how it worked. I really do. Free from alcoholism. Boom, just like that. Because we got rid of the demon. We delivered you from the demon. Beloved, that's not biblical. There's nothing like that in the Bible. The actual process of change is slow and methodical and difficult, but absolutely possible because of Jesus Christ, because of what he's done for you, because of his powerful word. And as we take in that word and we believe that word and we act upon that word, it is by that process that you and I battle our anger and attack it and kill it and battle our lust and our gossip and whatever other things that plague us and look to do us harm. Now let me remind you again of what the Apostle said, Paul said to the church in the city of Corinth. He said this, we said this a couple of weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And I would encourage you, beloved, if you think I might be taking that passage out of context, like what is he talking about, be imitators of me? I mean, maybe it's something else because I keep telling you, Paul was a selfless man. Paul was a man who imitated Christ. So he's asking, he's telling the church, imitate me as I imitate Christ. What does that mean? Look at the context. You can't, we can't do it now. But go back, look at 1 Corinthians 10 and look at 1 Corinthians 11 and you'll find out that Paul is talking about being selfless. Being selfless. In fact, he's talking about insisting that our freedoms in Christ that we have as Christians would be regulated by our love for others. That all that Paul does is for others. Not for his own advantage, not for his own profit, but always be thinking about the other. And it is in that context that Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul was the special man that he was because he had been transformed by the grace of God so that he truly became 
a real and genuine imitator of Jesus Christ. And here's what's going on for us. As we examine his life that is revealed to us and for us in the scriptures, we can learn from that what it looks like to actually think and feel and act like Christ. We'll see from the word of God what it is to be Christ-like as we examine Paul's life. In the text before us in Romans, Paul Paul shares some things in the introduction of this letter about himself with the readers of his letter. And what jumps out to me, like it does in so many other places in God's holy word, the scriptures, is Paul's Christ-like selflessness. His sincere love and concern for and devotion to others. Beloved, Because of our inherited sin nature, we can be very selfish people. Would you agree with that? And if you don't, you're delusional. You're delusional. Or you just haven't got married yet or something, maybe, because then you, you realize real quick. How selfish your spouse is. Uh, yeah, see? Wow, you are going to pay for that. Woo! In the text, okay, so let me pick up where I left off. Because of that, beloved, because we are selfish people, and the reality is we, we are too easily consumed with ourselves. You know, I, it was funny. I, this is a long time ago. It was someone was trying to, I had to do some public speaking. It had nothing to do with the word of God. It was for something entirely different. And when you're entering into public speaking, people are very afraid to get up and speak in front of others. And often it is because they have a concern about what people will think about them. And what helped me is the person told me, don't worry about it because they don't think about you. They spend 99% of their time, 99.9, this person told me, thinking about themselves. This was not in any kind of Christian context. They said, so don't worry about it. They won't, they're not thinking about you. They're busy thinking about themselves. So you know, just let that one go. And it actually helped me. It actually helped me to get, well, they don't really are thinking about me anyway, so... But the reality is that's true. If you really, if you took a thought journal as you went through your day, I challenge you to do it. Find out how many times your thoughts, your actions are centered on you. But by God's grace, as that grace works in our lives to make us more like the selfless Christ, to a greater and greater degree, we can and should be, beloved, characterized more by selflessness than by selfishness. We should seek to serve rather than be served, right? Mark 10.45, isn't that what the Lord did? I did not come to be served, but to serve the Lord, beloved. And we should do this, and hopefully we will do this, not for our own glory, but all of it for the glory of God, just as the Apostle Paul modeled for us as he imitated Christ with his life. So now, that was the introduction. Let's move into the text. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. Follow along. To all those in Rome, Paul says, who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord, Jesus Christ. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, 
in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Inside of your bulletins, you have an outline. Inside, you'll find this note that this morning, we're just going to continue where we left off, considering four selfless characteristics of the Apostle Paul that should be, by the grace of God, true of us as well. And the whole idea of this is to look at these things and examine your life in light of them. Do you have these selfless characteristics in your life? And if not, repent and begin to act accordingly by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit that dwells in you. So we're going to look at these. These should be true of us as well so that we ultimately will be in conformity with God's very purpose for our life, with God's goal for our life, God's will for our life. I've said this before. You want to know what God's will is for your life? It is for you to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And so if that's his will, we would do well to get in line with it. And as we see things in the word of God that communicate to us that we are not in line with what it says, we repent. We repent. And we turn to God and we turn to Christ and in him we find the power to live according to his word. These four selfless characteristics are his giving of thanks for others. Second, his constancy in prayer for others. Third, his longing to strengthen others. And fourth, his desire for the salvation of others. Two weeks ago, we just covered the first point. We'll finish today, Lord willing. Quickly reviewing the first point, his giving of thanks for others. Not going to go over all the details of that. We looked at that in verse 8. The habit of Paul's life, just by way of reminder or in case you weren't here, as evidence, as we looked at that characteristic, as evidence not just in Romans, but also in other letters of the New Testament, which we systematically went through, was to regularly give thanks for the gracious work of God in other people's lives. That was his habit. As a man who was always concerned about the spiritual welfare of other Christians and And we looked at that in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 28 through 29. You can look at that later. He was, being always concerned, quick to celebrate and rejoice with thanks to God when he heard of or witnessed spiritual growth or spiritual success in the lives of other believers. And of course he gave thanks to God, beloved, because according to Philippians 2.13, it is God who is at work in us, bringing about his goal in us to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. It's God. It's God. He always gets the praise. He always gets the glory. And so Paul turns to God, seeing what's going on in other people's lives, hearing of the good things that are going on in other people's lives, thinking about other people always, and begins to give thanks to God for those good things. Paul, like Christ, truly loved others, and he desired, beloved, the very best for them. And so consequently, he rejoiced in their spiritual blessings and growth. Now just think with me for a second. When we give thanks to God, how often is it strictly limited to what God has done for us and in us? Just consider that. That would be a way to examine yourself in light of this selfless characteristic. Is it right to give thanks to God for what he has done for you and in you? Yes, you bet it is. But is that all that you're giving thanks for? Or, are your, or is your thanks also filled with thanks to God for what he's doing in other people's lives? And that will help show you whether your heart is consumed with selfishness or with selflessness. Now let's look at the second selfless characteristic of Paul. That is his constancy in prayer for others. That's in Romans 1, verses 9 through 10. Here he says, look back at the text, For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Here we go again. His selflessness on display Because Paul was a man who without ceasing, did you see that there in the text? Without ceasing, verse 9, and always, 
Verse 10. Prayed for others. Prayed for others. The only thing I could say about our culture that that they do without ceasing and always is look at their smartphones. Seriously. Seriously, that is, I mean, it has taken over. We, my wife and I are constantly amazed. We, we now watch as we go into restaurants or something like that. There will be a group of four or five people and none of them talk to each other because they are all looking at their smartphones the whole time. We've seen families go to dinner tables and not talk to each other because they're just looking at their smartphones. Now, I'm not, I have a smartphone. I'm on my smartphone. Not, this is no comment about smartphones. I'm just saying of all the things that what we do, unceasingly and always is not probably exactly what Paul was doing. It is not. Always praying, beloved. And the idea is not that he prayed every minute of every day so he couldn't do anything else. The idea that's being communicated by Paul is that he consistently and frequently, consistently and frequently and regularly and faithfully prayed for the Christians in Rome. And let me remind you something. These people primarily were people that paul didn't even know he didn't even know them he he didn't have a personal relationship with them for the most part all of them were strangers and yet the man consistently and always was faithful to mention them in his prayers to god you see that you see the otherness of paul the selflessness of paul just completely focused not on him but others brothers and sisters in christ one man wrote actually martin luther the man the the father of our the reformation he wrote this christian prayer is complete only when we intercede for the common good of all and not merely for ourselves i think that's right i think that's right because to call it christian prayer immediately reflects the fact that you're a follower of Christ. And Christ was about others. It doesn't mean that we don't pray for ourselves. We do and should. Casting all of our cares and anxieties upon Him. Seeking Him, recognizing Him as Father and good provider. But is that all? Paul modeled something else. He was constantly also praying. For others, constantly lifting them up before the throne of grace, constantly bringing their needs and concerns and cares before God. So that the Christian readers in Rome would know that Paul was in no way exaggerating his earnest concern for them. We see here in the beginning of verse nine, he says he calls God, God as his witness. All right. You know, like you're in a court of law and you need someone to, to stand up for you, so you call a witness to, to defend, not defend you, but to establish what you're saying to be true. So what, who does Paul call? He calls God as his witness to the fact that he has regularly been in prayer to God for those in Rome. Listen, he's basically saying, I'm not just saying that, you know. Hey, I pray for you. I'll pray for you. You know, we do that, right? Don't worry, I'm praying for you. And then we don't. If, if we had to call God as our... I don't think many... I think we would be careful about that. We would have a problem with saying, I pray for you. I call God as my witness. We would fear, you know, lightning strikes and things of that nature. We wouldn't have the confidence to call God as our witness because the reality is we say we'll do it, but we don't do it. Why? Because we're consumed with ourselves. So the second we get away from someone else, it's back to us again. Huh? Uh. So he says, I'm not just saying this. I'm not just saying you're always in my prayers to try to impress you or make you think well of me. But God himself can testify. That's what Paul is saying. God himself can testify. Of how often, how consistently, how regularly, how faithfully I have been lifting you up in prayer to him. I want you to know. Beloved, this, this really was the selfless habit of Paul. He was always praying for others. And I, and I think it would be good for you and I to 
to note a few of his prayers that are recorded for us in the word of God and just see how it is that Paul, Paul does pray and how regularly he does pray for his brothers and sisters in Christ. So we'll just read through them. I'm not going to comment on them. Just reading through them. Ephesians 1, 16 through 19. Paul says this, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, here's what I, here's what I call out to the Lord on your behalf, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might. That's how He prayed for those in Ephesus, for the brothers and sisters in Christ in Ephesus. He says again in chapter 3, verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. To those in Philippi, he writes and prays for Philippians chapter 1 verses 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound, may overflow more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. To those in Colossae, writing to the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, We, Paul and Timothy in this case, Timothy, who is being mentored by Paul, his son in the faith, have not ceased to pray for you. There you go again, Paul. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of of God. To those in Thessalonica, he writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 11 through 12, to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, how often do we pray for others? That's a question to ask yourself. And when we do, if we do, does it sound anything like that? Does it resemble that at all? See, Paul wants, because of his otherness, because of his selflessness, he wants nothing more than to see Christians, his brothers and sisters in Christ, mature in the faith. That's what he wants for them. To see them grow and increase in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to see them Truly change for the glory of God. Now, beloved, I want to see myself grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to see myself change. Do you? Oh, you want to see me change too? Fine. Okay. That's fine. That's good. But it's, I, it's not just me. If I'm being transformed by the grace of God, then I'll have a desire not only to see God work in me, but God work in you. And in you, and in you, I will take an interest in your life. 
Because I'm desiring in my heart that God would do good things in you, regardless of the impact it has on me. Paul didn't even know these people in Rome. Their growth would have been growth that happens someplace far away. They weren't in his church. Okay? There would not have been an immediate impact or consequence to Paul, whether they succeeded or didn't in their faith. And yet, Paul still prayed consistently for them. Just as he prayed for many in the church, that they would grow, that they would advance, that they would succeed in Jesus Christ. Do you see that? While Paul doesn't give those in Rome the entire content of his prayers for them like like he did in many other of the passages we read, we know based on the last part of verse 10 in Romans 1 that his prayers concerning them included a specific request to God that he might finally be able to come to Rome to see them. But listen, even that request is primarily being made on behalf of those in Rome. Even that request. What do I mean? Well, we'll look at verse 11 because verse 11 answers the question, why is Paul or was Paul asking God to make it possible for him to come and visit his Christian brothers and sisters in Rome. Why? Here's the answer. Romans 11.1. 1. For I long to see you. That I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That's why. So that brings us to the third point. Paul's longing. Paul's longing to strengthen others. Paul longed to or greatly desired to impart, give, or share some spiritual gift with the Christians in Rome. Why? So that they might be spiritually strengthened. He desired, beloved, to personally meet them, having never met them, so that he might personally minister to them. Again, the selflessness of this man is displayed in the tense concern for the spiritual welfare of others. He longed to see his brothers and sisters in Rome, his Christian brothers and sisters, spiritually speaking, and specifically asked when he was praying about them that God would make it possible for him to be with them, not for his personal benefit or pleasure. All right. Paul wasn't saying, Lord, would you make it possible for me to go to Rome? Because I would love to check that place out. I mean, I would just love to travel there. I hear it's a, an incredible place. The, the Italian food is wonderful. God, please make it possible. No, that's not Paul's prayer. Primarily, mainly, his prayer is, is for their benefit and behalf that he might have an opportunity in meeting them to do something to make them spiritually stronger, that he might be able to encourage them and help establish them in their Christian faith. Now, in regard to what exactly the spiritual gift was that Paul hoped to impart to the Christians in Rome, we don't know, because the text does not tell us. And even Paul appears uncertain about what it will be, Because he uses the word some before spiritual gift. Some spiritual gift. Desire to impart to you some spiritual gift in verse 11. It is likely that Paul's vagueness is because at this point, not having ever met these people or spent time with them, he doesn't know what their main spiritual needs are. But what he does know is that he desires to see them strengthened in their faith. Since it is Paul, according to the text, who will be imparting this gift or or giving this gift, sharing this gift, not God, not the Spirit of God, as we see in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, where the Holy Spirit talks about giving gifts to those in the church, it would be best not to think of this gift as one of the specialized gifts that are given by the Holy Spirit to every believer, like the gifts we find listed in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4. But rather, as one writer says regarding this matter, 
he, that is Paul, appears to be using the word gift in a more general sense. So not talking about the specific spiritual gifts that are imparted to believers by the Holy Spirit. But rather, this is something he's going to give them. Perhaps he is referring to his own teaching or exhortation, which he hopes to give them when he arrives. I think it's probably something like that. Even though we don't know for sure what the spiritual gift might have been, because the text doesn't tell us, we can be certain that Paul wanted to impart a spiritual gift to them because of his earnest desire to see the Christians in Rome strengthened spiritually. That's the point, beloved. That's what you need to draw away from that. That's what you need to see. Again, over and over again, as he's introducing himself to these people in Rome who do not know him, the selflessness of Paul, the Christ-likeness of Paul, jumps out of the text if you don't read through it too quickly. And right after Paul expresses his loving concern for them and his desire to come and strengthen them, he adds this uh, qualifying statement in verse 12 that he probably felt was necessary to avoid any misunderstanding about what he just said in verse 11. So let me show you that. Look back at the text. Chapter 1, verse 11. Listen, I long to see you. It's why I've been, I've been praying for you. And when I'm praying for you, I've been asking God that he would make it possible for me to come to you. Why? Because I long to see you. I desire to see you. Why, Paul? That I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And then it's almost a, a pause. Verse 12. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith both yours and mine. Now listen, I think Paul is saying this, not not wanting his readers to get the wrong idea. They don't even know, they know maybe of Paul, but they've never met him. So here's this guy writing this letter to the church. Listen, I'm coming down there to strengthen you. Okay? But they may misunderstand. They may not understand Paul's love and concern, his apostolic authority, all of these things. His desire, his true desire, not to lord over them or, or to speak ill of them as if they're, they're weak people in need of the Apostle Paul, but just his heart for them. And so I think he's communicating this in these two passages. Listen, I, I'm just paraphrasing now. I, I am not, as if I was Paul, I'm not suggesting that you are weak and I am strong. Don't get me wrong. Nor am I suggesting that you need spiritual help and I don't. Because I do. And I know that by being with you, it will also be a great blessing and help to me. For we will certainly encourage one another, each of us by the other's faith. But I want you to know that I long to be with you, that I may minister to you and strengthen you. And I know as we come together, I will be ministered to as well. That was a long paraphrase, but that's what, I, that's what I think is going on behind those statements. Now, let me ask you something. Here's just another question to examine your own heart. Do you long to be with the people of God so that you might be a blessing to them? Or does that not really, is that not really a, a great concern of yours? Or any concern. Do you understand the question? Do you long to be with the people of God? Like here, right now on a Sunday morning. Or in many other venues that we have throughout the month or the week. In order that you might be a a blessing to them. Do you come on Sundays or join with God's people, as I've said, on the other days of the week. Primarily because you want to be blessed encouraged or strengthened by your brothers or sisters in Christ, but you do not give much thought to the spiritual welfare welfare, or the need of others to be strengthened in their faith? It's a question for you to ask yourself. Think it through. Because what it will expose is a selfish heart that needs to be repented of, or maybe a selfless heart. Why do you long to be with the people of God? 
Do you come to give? I guess I could say it this way. Do you come to give as well as receive? Or are you primarily focused on receiving? Okay? I can tell you this will bother some people, but that's okay. If you come in late every Sunday and you leave early every Sunday, then how exactly are you here to strengthen or encourage others? How can you do that? During the greeting time? I guess. You could do it during the greeting time. But one of the reasons we, we encourage people to come early is so that they can engage with another brother and sister in Christ and talk to them, encourage them, pray for them, find out what's going on in their life. Set up an appointment to get together for lunch or for dinner. Invite them over to your house. So on and so forth. One of the reasons we encourage you to stay after the service and not jet out the door at light speed. I know I go long and I know you get hungry. I understand that. I do. Come on. Another 10 minutes maybe. Are you thinking about that? It's just just stuff to think about, beloved. Or are you just so thinking, I got to get out of here. I got to, I'm hungry. I'm this, I'm that, I'm tired. Did you ever even stop to talk to another brother or sister in Christ? Did you ever stop to speak into their life at all? And those kind of things will help you begin to analyze how messed up you are. Because I'm messed up too. And I used, have been using this sermon to analyze myself. How often, Jeremy, do you pray for others? How often are you giving thanks for others? I long to strengthen others, but how much is that a part of my life? How often are my thoughts and, and the things that I do centered on me and not someone else and not my wife and not my kids and not my dear brothers and sisters in Christ? How often? You see? So these are just ways you can think those things through by your actions. Your actions reveal your heart. So I'll stop there. I mean, not with the sermon, but with that point, okay? <laughs> and finally... <laughs> So we've looked at Paul's giving of thanks for others. You're like, wow, he actually finished early. That's amazing. And no. So we have looked at Paul's giving of thanks for others. Second, his constancy in prayer for others. Third, his longing to strengthen others. Beloved, I'm just going to tell you, this is a work of God's grace in your life. We are selfish people. Okay? I am selfish. And yet by the grace of God, he's transforming me. It's his work. But you are involved as you see that sin in your life, you repent of it. Man, I am a selfish one. Man, I do think mostly about myself. Man, I obviously am not concerned about my brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't spend any time with them. And when I do, it's not real time. I come in late. I leave early. I don't get involved on any other level. I don't pray for them. I rarely give thanks for them. I don't really long to strengthen them. See? And then you say, Lord, I repent. I repent. I turn from that. I don't want anything to do with that because I know that your will for me is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is one who gives thanks for others clearly. Prays for others, intercedes for others, longs to strengthen others. Empower others. Transform others. He's all about others. I came to serve. Not to be served. Finally, his desire for the salvation of others. This is... This one's important. They're all important. But this, again, is another indicator to you of where your heart is and where your transformation process is with the Lord. Romans 1.13, this is where it is. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest. Here's why I want to I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now that last sentence there is, I think, better translated or a little bit easier to understand in the NIV. So he says, I have often intended to come to you 
in order that, that I might have a harvest among you, comma, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. Now hold that thought. Paul explains in chapter 15 what has, of Romans, what has prevented him up to this point from coming to Rome, which was his evangelistic gospel preaching and church planning ministry among the other Gentiles in the other areas of the Roman Empire. Okay? Rome was the ruling empire of the world at the time. And he wanted his Roman readers to know that he was not intentionally neglecting Rome, but he had often desired to come to Rome, which, by the way, was the capital of the Roman Empire and the, the known or the major city of the known world at that time. It was the major city. And he was desiring to come, he tells his readers, so that he might reap some harvest among them as well, just as he had done among the other Gentiles in the other places that Paul had already traveled in his ministry. He tells us that was from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, that area, and we find that in Romans 15, 19. So that's, listen, I've desired to come to you, but I've been busy seeing people get saved. Okay? Preaching the gospel in these other areas east of you. Desiring to come there, absolutely, but I've been working here. And now that my work is done, I am ready to go to Rome, and I'm praying that God would bring me there. It's funny how God brings him there, by the way. We'll get to that eventually, but Paul ends up going there as an arrested man. He's arrested and brought to Rome. Did not go how he probably thought he would go, but he did get there. Now, regarding Paul's statement about wanting to reap some harvest among them, just as he had among the other Gentiles, this is best or most naturally understood as a reference to Paul wanting to see more Gentiles there in Rome or among you, among the other Gentiles, come to faith in Christ, just as he had seen in his ministry to the Gentiles in the other parts of the Roman Empire. I think that's the best way to understand that. I am looking, I'm desiring to reap a harvest, to reap fruit, spiritual fruit, to see more Gentiles there among you come to faith in Christ, just as I have seen in my ministry among the other Gentiles and the other places I've been under the Roman Empire. One writer just says this. In other words, he hopes to win some converts to Rome. In other words, those who give their life to Christ just as among the other Gentiles, verse 13. And it would surely be appropriate that the apostle to the Gentiles, because that was his distinction. We find that in Romans 15, 16. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. It is appropriate that that apostle should engage in evangelistic reaping, seeing people won for Christ in the capital city of the Gentile world. So of course Paul wants to get there. Not only does he want to strengthen the church, he wants to see the church increased. So here again, here again, don't miss it. We have a display of Paul's selflessness, his intense care and concern for the spiritual welfare of others. We see his sincere and driving, passionate desire to see, listen, to see those who are spiritually lost, those who are living under the condemnation of God, those who are on their way to hell. Paul doesn't doesn't neglect them. He doesn't just think nothing of them. He is concerned for them. And he desires in his heart to see them saved, to see them spiritually rescued, granted forgiveness in Christ, and become recipients of eternal life. That's Paul. That's Paul. Now, I want to show you something else just to show you how deep this thing runs in Paul. And this is a work of God's grace in his life. He's not only concerned for those inside the church, beloved, he's concerned for those outside. He's concerned for those who are not part of the church. His desire, his concern is that they would become part of the church by giving their life to Jesus Christ. That's his concern. That's what he's doing. That's what he wants to do. Paul says this in Rome. I'm going to show you this. This is mind-boggling, really, 
In Romans 10.1, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now listen, right now in this verse, he's speaking about the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. Paul was a Jew. And specifically here, we'll get there eventually, he is talking about the Jewish people. It's, so not only do I, not only am I an apostle to the Gentiles, not only do I want to see the Gentiles saved, but of all people, the Jewish people, the ones who should have received their Messiah as their king and yet rejected him, my people, my race, my blood, I desire that they too would wake up Repent and turn to Christ and receive them as their appointed Messiah, anointed Messiah, Christ and King. And listen to how serious this is. Romans 9, when we go back, he's still talking about the Jewish people here. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Beloved, I'm going to get to it in a second. Do you have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in your heart for those who are lost? Think about it. Or do you not give it much thought? Great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, verse 3. And this is amazing. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. One translation puts it this way. I am ready to be cursed if that would help them. I am even willing to be separated from Christ. Do you understand what Paul just said? Paul knows this is not possible. It's impossible to be separated from Christ. Nothing can separate you from Christ. Once he has you, you can't get out. Okay? But Paul is saying, I hurt so bad for my people who have rejected their Messiah that if it could make a difference, I would even give up my very salvation. Think about that. I would be willing to go to hell if it made a difference, if my people would come to Christ. Huh? You see that? Do you think like that? Do you feel like that? We have considered four selfless characteristics of the Apostle Paul. That's what we've done. And I said they should be true of us as well. And they should be true of us as well so that we would be in conformity with God's will for our lives, which is be conformed to the image of His Son. We've looked at the giving of thanks for others as we saw it in Paul's life. His constancy in prayer for others. His longing to strengthen others, his incredible, passionate desire for the salvation of others. This man was other-centered. And and what we can do is we can just say, okay, whatever, and walk away from it. Or we can use this as an opportunity to say, Paul was a man who was transformed into the image of Christ. Paul was a man that said to the church, imitate me as I imitate Christ. God has made it his very goal, his very purpose, to do that very thing that he did in Paul in me. Now let me examine myself in light of what I just saw selflessness look like, Christ-likeness look like. Let me examine myself. God, examine me. Expose my heart. Because I even deceive myself. I think I'm better than I am. Expose my heart. Let me see it for what it really is, that I might repent of my selfishness. And that by your strength, by your spirit, I may begin to walk in selflessness. That I might long to strengthen others. I might change my thinking, my actions, the way I feel. I might repent of those selfish feelings, those selfish actions. 
That I might model Christ, the selfless one. That I might come to serve rather than be served. That while I'm praying, I might continually remember others in my prayers. That while I'm giving thanks to God for the good things He has done in my life, spiritually speaking, I might be thinking about others and the good things He's done in their life. Well, how am I going to know that? I'll only know that if I'm involved in other people's lives. Right? And I'm not. I'm a recluse. I'm a Christian recluse. I come out once a week on Sunday. And then I go back to my cave, never to be seen again. Never to interact with the people of God. See, that's just not the way it's supposed to be, beloved. So this morning we have communion. Communion is a a time, it's a celebration for Christians to remember Christ's death, resurrection on their behalf, to remember the great salvation they have in Christ, to remember what Christ did for them. Right? Right? Christ did that for you so that you might do for others. So that you might be a servant to others. So that you might bring the good message of Christ to others. So that you might love others. He loved you so that you might love others. He never expected his love to be deposited into your account and remain there. Never to be distributed again. No. He poured out His grace and mercy on us that we might pour it out on others. Scripture say in 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26, Paul instructing the church regarding communion, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed, He took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it, and He said, this is my body, which is for you. It's for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give myself for you in a few hours. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. You'll be brought into community with God through my blood, through my death on your behalf. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Beloved, this is a good time. It's always a good time to have a little reflection. But this is especially a good time in remembering Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. Remembering that He died for you. And remember last week if you were here, His death for sin was your death to sin. It has transferred you from the realm that you used to live in where sin was your master. And has taken you to a new realm of eternal life where Christ is your master and now you can live for Him. And so even in your reflection, if you see lots of selfishness in your life, have no fear. Not only are you forgiven in Christ of that selfishness, but you are empowered by Him to walk in newness of life. To begin to model Him. To begin to live as He lived. To begin to comply with Paul's instruction to the church. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. In a moment the elements will be passed. We ask that if you're not saved, if you're not sure, this is not for you. But we would love to talk to you about your salvation if you're not sure about that. Hold the elements into the end so that we can partake together. And let me just now pray for these elements before they're passed. Father in heaven, we, we just come together before you, always humble before you, Father. If we really search our hearts, Father, I am certain, as I have my own, that we will be exposed to lots of mess, sin. Father, by nature, because of our inherited sin nature, we, we are selfish people. And it is destructive. It does not glorify you. 
It does not honor you. And it does not help us. That's how foolish it is. That's how idiotic sin is. We, we think by being selfish, somehow it'll help us. And yet, God, you have called us to selflessness, as we've seen here modeled in Paul's life. And we know that, God, if you've called us to this, to be like your son, that it will be the best thing for us. So might we believe that? Might we see all of our selfish tendencies as something to flee, to run from, not to embrace, not to cuddle up with, not to make excuses for, but to flee, to repent of, to turn from. And might we turn to you and to your spirit that dwells in us and believing in his power and strength to begin to manifest selflessness in our life. Be conformed to the image of our selfless Savior who gave himself willingly for us, who came to this earth to serve rather than to be served. Father, do that work in us, I pray, I ask, as we celebrate now the death of our Savior on our behalf and we reflect on these these things and the things that we've heard this morning and over the last couple of weeks. Work in us now through your Spirit and bless these elements as we take of them. In Jesus' name, amen.